I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Anne Cloyd, who for many years has been the MP for Kinnan Valley. Anne, you're actually from Flintshire originally, aren't you? I am. I lived in Flintshire till I was 14 years of age. I went to school in Pentre Hawkin, which is a small village between Moles and Hollywell. And then I went to Hollywell Grammar School for about three years. And then my father's job finished. He, he was a metallurgist. He worked in Hawkin Mines. And we moved to Chester, which is nearer to his new place of work in, in Winsford in Cheshire. So I moved at the age of 14. So were you a native Welsh speaker? Well, I was because of my parents, because we were brought up in an area where there were hardly any Welsh speakers. There were no Welsh uh, speakers in my school, for example. And my parents really persisted, because my father had lived in Canada for 15 years, but he had a very strong sort of feeling for the Welsh language, and my mother did as well. Yeah, they kept talking Welsh to us when we answered in English a lot of the time. And um, because we went to a Welsh chapel in the village, I can remember the feeling of walking to chapel. We seemed to go to chapel about three times every Sunday. <laughs> and myself and my sister had to walk in one direction, and all the other children were coming in the opposite direction to the church because it was English speaking. But we had to face all the children going the other way. And I can remember how much we disliked doing that, but we had to do it. And then I think you went to uh, Bangor University? I did. From Hollywell Grammar School, I went to school in Chester, which is a girls' direct grant school, uh, where my parents thought I would be better disciplined than I had been in my, in my old grammar school in Hollywell. Indeed, you know, I learned a lot of things there because we had politics uh, as a school subject, uh, modern politics, which was unusual, is unusual now, was certainly unusual then. And we had a young teacher who just come from Oxford and she somehow got us, you know, really interested in uh, politics and in uh, everyday affairs so, you know, we, were, we felt we were quite switched on. In Hollow Grammar School, we did civics. Oh, yes. Again, which is, uh, you know, quite unusual. And I think, it's, uh, I think it's a great pity now that children don't have the same opportunity. What did you study at Bangor? English and Welsh. Ah, right, OK. Because I think, wasn't there a time when initially you were planning to be a teacher? Uh, no. You worked as a student teacher no, for no. a little while? I never no? wanted to be a teacher, but I'll right. tell you what happened. I was in school in Chester. I wanted to do O-levels Welsh. Of course, I didn't teach that, did they, in, in my school in Chester. So um, my father made some arrangement with um, Dr Hayden Williams, who was then the Director of Education for Flintshire. And the deal was that I could uh, go to Harden Grammar School one day a week to do Welsh, and in return I would teach in one of the Flintshire schools, 
as a student teacher. Ah, I see. So I, I went to school, uh, it was called Hope School, uh, Hope and Kair Gurle. We went there and, uh, you know, I t- taught, I, I learnt as well, because one of the things I was supposed to teach was Welsh history. Well, I'd never done Welsh history at school. So I can remember sitting at a desk teaching the children with the textbook under my <laughs> under the desk. So, but it was interesting, uh, and the only reason I stopped being a student teacher fairly quickly, I was studying for my A levels, and I I got um, oh what did the kids get mumps or something like that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had to sort of you know clear off. So I was able to stay in bed and uh, sort a bit for my A-levels. So that's how I went from being a student teacher, but never I, I never wanted to be a teacher. I did want to work. I, I had holiday jobs, interesting holiday jobs. I worked in Chester Zoo for a time. Right. Buttering bread in the buttery, one of my school holidays. But then we had a fallout because I asked for when we were going to have a break, because we were working, you know, non-stop without a break. Uh, and I was about 16 at the time, and they said to me, if you don't like it, leave. So I left. Right. And that was my first experience of having to stand up to an employer to say, it's not right what you're doing. And so I think, you know, that was a useful experience. So was that one of the um, seminal experiences from a point of view of developing your political outlook? I think it was. But I also had another job working in a, an orphanage uh, in Chester. Then I thought I might be a, a social worker. However, I remember the, me being taken to a, a big hospital in Chester and taken round a ward where the children had encephalitis, mm-hmm. which was a tremendous shock to me. You know, <laughs> a young schoolgirl to be taken into that kind of ward without any any training or any explanation and I thought I could never do this so being a social worker went out of uh, the window as well and then I started uh, knocking political doors because one of the friends of the family was a son Morgan and I remember one election knocking doors for him and I had quite a taste for that. <laughs> I think I must have been about 17 at the time. Wow, yeah. Is that when he was... Uh, that was before he uh, stood over in what the constituency was called Cardigan, what he got yes, elected yeah, for. So yeah. he was standing in Wrexham, was he? He was, he was. And he didn't get elected? No, he didn't. No, no. no. <laughs> well, it was all Tory territory at that time, was it? He still supplied Cymru candidate, of course. Of course he did, yes. yes. So did you have a, a bit of a... Fling with Plaid Cymru then at one stage? Not ever as a member. I, I never joined it. And I can remember talking to my father. He wasn't all that interested in politics, but, you know, he had an intelligent grasp of the political systems. And I remember him saying, talking to me about it. And I realised at that time that Plaid Cymru didn't have a social policy. And for me, social policy was important. And that's why I never joined Plaid Cymru, but belonging to Ailwyd yr Eirth, which was very strong in Chester, actually. And in fact, I discovered some Welsh roots in Chester, more than I ever discovered living in Pentrahokin in Flintshire, mm. or, or in Hollywell. Because uh, there was somebody who ran the 
Aelwyd there, which was the sort of senior branch of Rirth. And uh, Edna Owen, who came from um, a family which made a real, has continued to make uh, a contribution to um, uh, literature, children's literature in Welsh and indeed the cultural scene in Wales. Her father, J.F. Owen, uh, used to illustrate books. She, she was quite an influence on, on me at that time. Because, of course, you became a journalist, didn't you? And did. you worked for the BBC for a while, and then you were working for The Guardian. Um... Well, I almost became a journalist in a sort of different way, because my father, the then managing director of the Chester Chronicle, went to our chapel in Chester, and he was a friend of my father's in the same Sunday school chap- uh, class. And my father always thought I should be a journalist, and, you know... Uh, as you are, you know, if your parents suggested it, you didn't want to do it. <laughs> but I might have been a cub reporter on the Chester Chronicle, but uh, I passed uh, by that opportunity at the time. And it was only later when my first job, actually, and I, my father saw an advert in a Welsh newspaper for a studio manager in the BBC in Cardiff. And he said, you ought to try for that. So I tried for it, and um, luckily uh, I was uh, accepted, and that's the reason I came to Cardiff when I was aged about 21 or 22, and I've never left Cardiff. Right, yeah. And of course, being a studio manager is not really the same as being a journalist, is it? So how did you make the transition from being working for the BBC as a studio manager to being the Welsh correspondent of The Guardian? Well, you were start, starting then. You know, the whole thing in broadcasting scene in Wales was developing. Television hadn't yet started, but sound, of course, was um, running a very strong series of programmes. And then television started. And I remember the first television studio was in Broadway. We played Grams gramophone records, because I made sound effects. Uh, what do you have to do? <laughs> you played these big discs, and you marked them up with a chinograph pencil, and you had to jump grooves on the air. So if you made a mistake, you know, in jumping the grooves, you had to have a very steady hand, which has always, I think, been very good for me in my future work, because if you made a mistake, Everybody heard it. It was developing, broadcasting was developing, it was exciting. There were lots of interesting people around. And I was able to do a variety of things. I was able to try being an announcer, writing scripts, interviewing. But being a studio manager got you into broadcasting and gave you all sorts of opportunities. Now, after that, after about... Five years, you know, everybody wanted to move on to do something else. So I decided to freelance. Of course, you have to uh, make jobs for yourself. And one of my first jobs, actually, was Abavan. Good Lord, in in 1966. Yes. I was in my car, mini car, driving somewhere around South Wales Valleys, and I heard on the radio what had happened in Abavan. So I turned my car around. And I went to Abavan. I didn't realise what I was going to at the time, obviously. It was such a 
you know, an amazing scene uh, because there was machinery, low, hundreds of people standing around and you didn't realise that the what you were standing on was actually half the mountain which had fallen on top of the school. And I stayed there all day and I did I did the first broadcast from there. Other people right. claim it, but right. I know I did it because there was nobody else around. Yeah. And I went back, you know, I followed up the Abervan um, story. I followed up, uh, I got very interested in coal miners because my own grandfather... My father's father had been a slate miner. In North Wales. In North Wales, during the Great Strike. Ah, yes. He and his sons. So they're all affected by that. And I know people felt strongly years after and still feel strongly because of the bad experiences they had at that time. Luckily, they had a small holding as well, so they were able to survive. So I was interested in, you know, that family, bit of family history. And then I became very interested in the coal miners and I followed their fight for compensation. The way I got into the Guardian was in an unconventional way. I rang them up every day for a week and at the end of the week they said, OK, <laughs> get, get her off our backs. OK, you know, have a, have a, have a go. And uh, I never looked back from that, really. But they must have been impressed by the work that you'd done at the BBC uh, and elsewhere, otherwise they wouldn't just say that to anyone, would they? Well, as you know, persistence is the name of the game. Yes. And, you know, if you've got a story to tell and you're persistent, even, you know, if you don't come from a conventional journalistic background, mm. people say, oh, well, you know, she's got a nose for it. Mm. I think I always had a nose for it, and I always will have a nose for it. So what were the most memorable stories that you did for The Guardian, would you say? A, l a lot of them are surrounding coal mining. I, got a, I remember got a front-page story once. After Abavan, people started checking where coal tips had been built on top of underground streams. Mm. And as you know, I have quite a number of those in South Wales. And I... You know, started talking to the miners who had pneumoconiosis. And I remember when I was selected for Aberdeer, going down the street in Penrocaiba, and people were, you know, on nebulizers, on oxygen, and they'd say, Some people, oh, he's gone to hospital. And you realise the toll this had taken on people. And how hard they had to fight for compensation. So I got interested in, you know, what caused it, what were the health reasons, what was the difference between dust in the anthracite mines in South Wales compared with non-anthracite. And so the Guardian sent me all over the country to look at uh, research areas where they were looking into pneumoconiosis. And you realise that doctors used to say, dust is good for you. <laughs> good Lord, yes, it's absurd. So I, I found that an all-embracing interest. And of course, there's a picture up there where, that was during the first miners' strike, I think during Ted Heath's time, mm. in 74. Mm -hmm. And I went down a mine uh, in Oakdale. 
and the photographer who was supposed to come with me from the Guardian and we had to actually lie flat on our fronts and wriggle down the tunnel and he said I'm not coming down there so I said well I'm going anyway and he came as well. Right, so you <laughs> metaphorically twisted his arm. <laughs> but yeah. I got a colour piece, I was able to say what it was like on the cold face and then people wrote letters to the Guardian, lots of letters at the time saying Ted Heath and his and his Tory friends should do what Anne Cloyd's done and go down a coal mine and find out what it's really like. And of course what happened was, um, he said, didn't he, um, who runs Britain? And yes. they, people decided it wasn't going to be him. Yes, yeah, exactly. And so that was in 74. And then that's round about the time when you started looking for potential seats to stand in, was it? Well, yes, that, that was, when I say almost by accident, I was sitting in a Stethford one morning talking to Hugh T. Edwards, you know, the T&G leader from North Wales. And he, he suddenly said to me, have you thought of politics? And I said, mm, not really. <laughs> and he said, you should. You should stand in a seat. There's a vacancy going in North Wales at the moment and they could do with somebody who's well speaking. And why don't you apply? So Emrys Jones, who was then the Secretary of the Labour Party in Wales, uh, he persuaded me to... It was a hopeless seat, of course, from Labour's point of view, because it was Geraint Morgan with a massive majority of something like over 20,000. So uh, for anybody challenging that, you knew you weren't going to win, although you always thought there's a possibility. And it was a rural area, big rural area. It was called Denby at the time because it had Rill, Colwyn Bay, Llanroost, you know, it was huge land area. And Abigale, which was a retirement home for people from Liverpool at the time. Um, but I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the experience. Once it had got under my skin, there was no looking back. But of course, before you went to the House of Commons, you went to the European Parliament, didn't you? At the time when, I think it was the first election, wasn't it, that took place? Was that in 79? Yes. But in the meantime, I tried for other Westminster seats. But at that time, it was almost impossible for a woman to get elected in Wales. Did you find when you went round and appeared at Hustings events, when you were trying to get selected, was there, did you detect a misogyny amongst the people who were deciding who the candidate should be? Well, I certainly detected stitch-ups. <laughs> women at that time weren't very supportive of women either. People working in politics mm. weren't all that supportive. I mean, there were exceptions like Megan Roach, was the woman's officer in Wales. But actually it was quite difficult. You'd go to, you know, a selection panel and you'd realise the women weren't going to vote for you, weren't going to support you. Sometimes there were stitch-ups. You know, well, where they, old, they decided who was going to oh, win. Oh, yeah, there was an old boys' network, certainly. Yeah, yeah. And some were very obvious and they usually made the front page of the Western Mail, I must say. But if you were determined, you you carried on. When I, I was persuaded to stand for the European Parliament, somebody who was then Denzel Davis's agent in Llanelli 
Jeff Hopkins. Oh, yes. Jeff Hopkins phoned me up and said, we don't like the way you've been treated in Carfilly. I didn't know Jeff Hopkins before. We don't like it. We didn't like it. And we want to support you for the European Parliament. Well, I thought, oh, <laughs> And you hadn't thought of the European Parliament before. I hadn't really, no. And then, you know, I had to go around eight constituencies to get support. And I got support from men and women. In fact, there's, there was one woman in particular from Carmarthenshire. And I stood up at some meeting and said, after I'd been selected, and I said, oh, I've been selected. I think they've selected me because they don't think it matters. And this woman said, stood up and said, excuse me. Don't ever let me hear you saying that again. You were selected because you were the best. Which, you know, was a nice thing for somebody to say. Because there were lots of people in for that at that time. Including Ivor Richard, who, you know, yeah. later became a commissioner. And quite a lot of fairly well-known names. But I got selected. And then Jeff got to work. And we really campaigned very hard all over. It was a huge area. Mid and West Wales, next to Winnie Ewing in the Highlands and Islands, it was the biggest land area in the UK. Right. So sometimes we were talking to sheep, you know. <laughs> in fact, we even got cows to dance on one stage <laughs> when we were trying to cover this huge area. We had loudspeakers, and every so often we'd have a mad moment. <laughs> Yeah. Get the cows to dance because there were no people around. <laughs> and <laughs> and how, it was, a, you know, it was a fascinating mm. campaign. Yeah, yeah. And how did you find the European Parliament? What was your perspective on that? Well, I, I went over as a prospective candidate to a meeting organised by the Commission, and they'd taken a group of us who were journalists actually over to see what it was like. And my one about, well, I wrote about it actually memory was being in this uh, event in the commission and they were actually popping champagne corks into the ceiling and I thought this was really really profligate <laughs> you know I was a bit shocked by the whole thing but then you know we were in the in the period of excesses the the uh, the huge food sugar mountains yeah. wine lakes and all the rest of the things and the things we campaigned against at the time you know, people forget that both the Tories and Labour were split on the issue. Now is almost a repeat of the whole thing. So I was elected as an anti-EU candidate. After two years, I thought, I can see how this place works. I can see how it could work. And I found the interaction with other nationalities to be really something worthwhile, something I felt excited about. So when one of the factories in uh, in my constituency in Llanelli was due to shut down, I talked to the trade unions in Europe and the place it was supposed to move to in Belgium refused to take it as an act of solidarity for the workers in Llanelli. Now, you know, I thought that was, well, if we can cooperate like this to save jobs... This is tremendous. There were lots of other issues. The things that I went to the... took a petition to the European Parliament in 1977 was for women's rights. And many of the things that we argued for then then became law 
during the period I was a Euro MP, you know, equal rights for men and women. And so it was, you know, really exciting and positive. And I was on the environment and employment committees and they were talking about acid rain in Brussels when nobody was talking about acid rain in this country. So I found it stimulating and exciting and full of uh, possibility of doing things uh, for the better. So it's the, the Labour group at that time in Europe, there were only 17 of us, and we were actually split in half. Half was, were pro and half were anti. And when I became pro, the antis could barely speak to me. There was one MEP, Scottish, who didn't speak to me for two years afterwards because I'd switched sides. Although I, went, I said it openly, I wrote a piece for the New Statesman, why I've changed my mind. And I went around the eight Euro, the constituency made up my Euro constituency, and explained why. And I'm always grateful that I went to the European Parliament first and not to Westminster, because I think it broadened my horizons. I became more acutely aware of human rights, because there were people there who campaigned very strongly for human rights. And that's where I got involved in Cambodia and, you know, Pol Pot and all, all of that and Oxfam. I became a human rights campaigner as a result of meeting people in the European Parliament you know, who were themselves active and introduced me to, to the issues. And I don't think I would have had that had I gone to Westminster first. And then you did go to Westminster, didn't you? I and did. uh, that was at a by-election, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Uh, so how did you come to apply? This was um, Aberdare, the constituency was called at the time, wasn't it? Yes. So how did you come to be selected to be the um, Labour candidate for Aberdare? Well... Because I tried for it ten years earlier. <laughs> That's you know little known fact, but I, I tried for it ten years earlier. I got on the shortlist uh, ten years earlier. I remember a relative of mine. I had some relatives in uh, in the Canon Valley, and a relative coming uh, to the meeting in the Miners Institute with a rabbit's paw as a good luck token. I never heard of that before. Oh. Anyway, I got on the shortlist, but I didn't get it. Johan Evans got it. So then, you know, after I'd been to the European Parliament, I'd been able to demonstrate, you know, some of the things that I campaigned for. I got very close to the miners. So the miners always supported me in all the by-elections or at the previous elections I'd tried for, and they always supported me. And that was because of my own interest, you know, in their issues. So when the vacancy came in Aberdare, uh, one of the miners' leaders of the time, he said, asked me to call in his house, and he passed over a nomination form. And he said, we've been waiting for you. You know, and then it snowballed from then on. Yeah. So that's how I arrived there. And of course... When you got elected, it wasn't enormously long before the, um, the, the the long strike began, was it? No, that's right. And I remember this occasion when you actually went down the mine for a while, didn't you? As a protest against the closure programme. Yes, I did that twice, actually. <laughs> Once when I was a journalist in Oakdale Colliery. But after that, when I was a Euro MP, the closures in steel started. 
you know, so we had lots of visits to Brussels trying to put pressure on them um, to help the steel workers. But of course, you know, Trostra and Valindra, they were all in my constituency. So, in fact, I've got a, a tree in there, <laughs> an ornamental tree made of steel, made by steel workers uh, for me as a present. It's a lovely thing, and I've kept it since then. Um, but I, I took them to Brussels. We campaigned hard to no avail. And I remember the Social Affairs Commissioner, Hank Raidling, saying at the time, he criticised Margaret Thatcher for not having a social programme, a social policy to provide a safety net, you know, for the steel workers. He said, unlike other countries in Europe, you haven't got that safety net. And of course, it was true. But with the coal miners, uh, obviously, I was then... Uh, Tower Colliery was one of the mines in uh, Canon Valley, and I was very involved with them. When they said they were going to close it, I took the workers to see people in uh, Parliament. I made lots of speeches in Parliament. I, I took a group to protest uh, outside the offices of the Department of Trade and Industry in London. And then the final, I mean, it's a long story, but uh, finally they said they were going to close it because it, it was uneconomic. And the mines, miners said to me, and Tyrone Sullivan in particular said, it's not true. We know it's economic. And they're just lying to us because they want to shut it. So, you know, we have that challenge. And I said, well, whatever you want me to do, I'll try and do it for you. So one day I got a call from Tyrone O'Sullivan, who asked me to go down the pit. He thought, you know, that was the only thing that could be done now. The only way of saving the pit was to have that kind of protest. So I met up with a retired miner very early one morning. I drove back from London to Aberdeer. My secretary, Jean, my PA, was there. And she she had uh, loads of Mars bars, little mini Mars bars for me. And she stuffed them into my anorak pocket. And she said, take those, they might be useful. Well, they were. And I hate Mars bars. <laughs> so I said to her, oh, I don't want Mars bars. She said, keep them, it might be useful. So I had my pockets full of uh, Mars bars. And then I had... We borrowed the helmet and the lamp of the manager, who I apparently was very annoyed subsequently. And I followed this old retired miner down, down one of the back entrances to the pit. And we had to walk down the tunnel underground. Uh, and at the bottom, the mine, the men were supposed to have prepared food and drink and warmth. But the management of cotton's on. So when we got to the bottom, and it was quite hazardous just walking down there because it was cold, towers high up, Brecon Beacons. And it was cold down there and there was a wind blowing us. And I wished I'd got more clothes on. And when we got there, there was, there was nothing, no food, no drink, no warmth, and nobody to meet us because the management had already blocked the men from getting to us. So then followed... An uncomfortable <laughs> 27 hours with uh, phone calls to the uh, top of the pit, uh, management urging me to leave. 
somebody came down in the middle of the night, a woman tried to come down, bringing uh, us food and blankets, but they were blocked. In fact, the management asked me, said it was dangerous for them to be there, and would I ask them to go back? So reluctantly I had to do that. But uh, they were very brave at the time to come and try and help us. And then I got a phone call uh, saying they've changed their minds. Because I'd said I would stay there until there was a change. Well, you know, I half believed them. Because I thought, oh, the call board are up to their old tricks. They said, no, no, they, you know, they have said they've changed their minds. I said, well, you know, on that understanding, I will come up. So we got to the top of the pit. And of course, by that time, literally the world's press were there. And uh, they were all linked to me saying, are you glad? And I'd say, I'll wait and see. You know, I was cautious then, I'd wait and see. And of course, the trick they they did, yes, they kept the jobs. But the men were told they'd only be paid half their wages. Mm. So, you know, it went on after that, of course. But we managed to keep that pit open for 12 years, 10, 12 years, which is important for that community because a lot of jobs depended on it. So I was pleased, you know, I was able to help a bit. Do you think the miners' strike was a mistake? No, I don't, because I think, you know, it was true that they were planning. They had plans to shut the pits. They didn't like the NUM had it in for them. Um, I think it might have been handled at various times in a different way. It's very difficult for people like Neil Kinner, coming from a mining family, but, you know, he found it very hard to deal with uh, Arthur Scargill at the time. But in my area, there are very strong Arthur Scargill supporters. And, of course, you know, during the strike also, we'd had people trying to go to work. Only one man tried to go and work in the Furnaceite plant in the Canon Valley. So there were huge protests outside the Furnaceite plant. And his wife used to drive him to work, so you can imagine the scenes outside. Uh, he wasn't from that area originally, but, you know, obviously somebody who was looked on as a scab. But the other people, you know weren't earning money and were suffering a lot, actually. Um, to find one person doing it was uh, really like, like a red flag to a bull. And so, you know, I joined in the protest with other people and I saw some of the uh, behaviour of the police at the time um, because people were drafted in, as you know, from all over the place. And I still think there ought to be a, a, a proper inquiry into what happened during the miners' strike because, uh, you know, people want to know the truth. People believe they know what the truth is, but they would like it uh, established, and I fully support them. One of the other issues, of course, that you've become very much identified with is the rights of people all over the world, in fact, but specifically, you've um, espoused the cause of the Kurds very strongly, haven't you? What was it that attracted you particularly to their cause? Well, that came through the NUM, believe it or not, because Emlyn Williams was then the head of the NUM in Wales, and these two friends of mine, who were Iraqis, not Kurds, Iraqis were in Cardiff as students, 
and they'd gone to see Emlyn Williams to tell them what was happening in Iraq because the man had been, was a student activist and had been arrested and tortured in jail. And so they said, who can we talk to, uh, you know, who'll be sympathetic and will listen to what we have to say? And he apparently said, I know just the person. <laughs> so that was me. And so it was the Iraqis I got involved with. First of all, they're still friends of mine. They still live in Cardiff. And then the Kurds came in a bit later because campaigned against the uh, arms trade. And I'm still on the one of the major committees on arms export controls in the House of Commons and have been for about 15 years. And uh, we were selling arms to Saddam Hussein. And the evidence was, you know, there, then. And we were standing up in Parliament. There was a long campaign in Parliament about it. Then the chemical weapons attack on the Kurds. And Alistair Hay, the uh, specialist toxicologist, went to uh, Kurdistan and brought back soil samples. But, you know, they kept telling us, the ministers then in, in Westminster kept saying there's no proof. I'd say to them, you know, get the proof. They could have got the proof. But the, the proof was we saw some of the victims in a hospital in London of the first chemical weapons attack against the Kurds. And I took a, a group of M women MPs, or party, to see them in a, a hospital in London. And they were badly burned. Some of them couldn't talk, you know, because chemical weapons, you know, what it does to people. And it seemed to me really obscene that we should be selling weapons knowing that this was the effect uh, because somebody as ruthless as Saddam Hussein uh, was using them. Uh, and so I've you know, campaigned against chemical weapons for, for many years. And then you know, it became a big issue with the Kurds. And I got involved in the... Uh, you know, Kurdish politics, and, you know, in the end I became a special envoy for Tony Blair, a special envoy on human rights to Iraq, where I was able to visit prisons, were hopefully able to influence a bit, you know, the aftermath of uh, Saddam Hussein, because we had uh, researchers who gathered evidence ready for trials, because we knew we had to give, you know, hard evidence if ever there was to be uh, trials of some of those in the regime who were responsible. And I remember talking to Kofi Annan in uh, Geneva and saying to him, if we gather the evidence, what will you do? And he said, oh, well, you probably have to, they have to come before an international criminal court. But when we got the evidence, of course, he didn't actually do anything. So we had a you know big fights to get indictments over a period of years and uh you know eventually it it happened. But because of my long association with the Kurds and with the Iraqis, I know a lot of people there. I'm still I chair the all party Iraq group in the House of Commons. You know, I've been involved in many people who the, the man who died last year, President Talabani, who was uh, Kurdish, 
he used to call me the Queen of the Kurds. It used to be a bit of a joke. <laughs> they were grateful, you know, for the efforts made on their behalf at that time. So some of those friendships, you know, have endured and still do. If we look at the reputation that Tony Blair has got now, a lot of people don't remember or don't talk about the huge amount of money, for example, that he, together with Gordon Brown, invested in public services uh, and the introduction of tax credits, that sort of thing. What he's remembered for, and most people would see that his reputation was tarnished by his decision to go and support George Bush in invading Iraq. And the focus on the issue of weapons of mass destruction, which at that time they say, or people conclude and the inquiries have concluded, that there weren't actually any WMDs. Do you think that um, Tony Blair's reputation has been unfairly trashed? Yes, I do. And there are very few people who stand up in Parliament now and defend him. I'm one of them. Because, you know, my support for that war came after collecting evidence of what Saddam was, Hussein was doing to his own people. Not just the Kurds, but the Shia in the south. And very little information was coming out on what was going on in, in the south. Devastation of the marshlands, the marsh Arabs' home, a killing of so many Shia because there were uprisings of people of Iraq, the Kurds and also the Shia. But every time they were crushed by Saddam, by the obviously superior might of Saddam, and very brutally uh, crushed. In fact, one of the first things after the war I went to was uh, the opening of the Genocide Museum in Kurdistan where what had happened to the Kurds was documented. And people, uh, it was a very sort of um, you know, emotional day because people came to the opening of the museum. It was snowing on that day. And they were coming to me with pictures of their missing sons, husbands, wrapped up in cling film. And, and wanted me to see them, show them. And... You know, we I'd gathered a lot of evidence myself. We had, we had several researchers um, collecting evidence for the war crimes trials. You know, so I knew how awful the things he had done were and were continuing to be done. So in the February before the war, I was in Kurdistan and the Kurds believed there was going to be a second chemical weapons attack against them. And... Jalal Talabani, who became the president of Iraq, said to me, they're going to use them again. We're pretty confident of that. And will you ask Tony Blair for chemical weapons protection suits so we can protect ourselves? So the belief, they were on the spot. The belief was very strong that that was going to happen. Because apart from Halabja, there had been other attacks which hadn't been uh, written about at the time. And I felt, I knew, of the things I knew, I probably knew more about human rights abuses in Iraq than anywhere, and almost anyone 
because I'd seen the evidence. In fact, we we had a student, uh, an Iraqi student in, in London, who used to bring me every two weeks a list of people who had been killed at the Abu Ghraib prison with details, names, details, etc. And sometimes it was so horrific, I'd say to him, Halila, I, what evidence have you got? Uh, you know, because I, I was going to use the evidence and I wanted to be sure it was sound. And he'd say, I'll go away and check. And he'd come back with even more horrific stories. And so, you know, I had no doubt that this, this was happening, really unbeknown to the world outside Iraq. And so the, the Kurds, the first time they ever said to me, there's no other way. You know, and Taliban himself said to me, there's no other way. You know, we've had the uprisings, and look, we've suffered terribly as a result. There's no other way. We need help. So that's why I came back, made a speech in support of Tony Blair's actions. I knew nothing about, you know, the allegations, the allegations, obviously weapons of mass destruction. Uh, I still believe someday that will be proved. Um, because where did the Syrians get <laughs> Chemical weapons. some of their weapons from? Anyway, that wasn't my reason for going to war. It was the human rights abuses over a long period of time and the suffering of the people in the country. Uh, so that, for me, was a good enough reason to argue uh, for supporting Tony Blair. And, you know, I used to talk to him often and report every time I went to Iraq, uh, written reports about what was going on there, what I saw in the prisons, etc., etc., I've always felt confident that it was the right thing to do. And yet, if we look at the turmoil that happened after the invasion, democracy hasn't been easy to establish there, has it? But it never is. I mean, when you think about, you know, after the First and Second World Wars, it took a long time for those countries to get back to normal. It's the same here. There are, and in addition, the outside influences, people playing for power, other countries round about... But I think if you asked most Kurds, they would say it was the right thing to do. And the Shia in the South, I'm sure they would say the same thing. But what to me is absolutely essential is that people should have basic facilities in the country. Um, when you find people are short of water, short of uh, electricity can't use air conditioning in, in very hot weather. All those things are enough to make people very unhappy. And especially if they feel, you know, the share-outs are not fair. Of course, this is all going on. But I don't think anybody could have predicted that. I really do think that the Americans have put in a great deal of effort. I mean, I was there when they were preparing for the first election... And they were training people in how to, you know, stand for election, what to do during an election. Uh, I saw them training would-be politicians, the city council, which was already in existence. And I, I think people forget that side of it. A lot was done to try and support what was, what, what, what still is an emerging democracy. Coming much nearer home, back to home... You've crossed swords 
with the Welsh Government, haven't you, over their uh, health service, their mm. running of the health service. Partly that stemmed from the, the treatment of your late husband when mm. he was in hospital. But I think what happened was that when you started to get publicity for your uh, expression of concerns, a lot of people contacted you. What's your perception of the way that the Welsh Government is running the NHS now? Uh, well, let, let me talk a bit about, you know, my involvement with the NHS before all of that. I was on the Welsh, Old Welsh Hospital Board between 1980 and 84. And I think that Welsh Hospital Board, under the chairmanship of William Priest-Davies, did a good job of work. And I was responsible for the whole of Wales. <laughs> there weren't seven health authorities. Just as I joined, the whole Ely hospital scandal came out. And Bob Dumbleton, Bob Dumbleton was a lecturer in UWIST. He and I were the youngest member of the Welsh Hospital Board. And Bob Dumbleton and I were asked by Gwilym Priest-Davis to investigate provision for mental health services in Wales. And then I was very active during that period. It was scrapped, Welsh Hospital Board scrapped by the Welsh Office, big mistake. And responsibility for health was taken into the Welsh Office, big mistake. <laughs> then I was put on a um, uh, another sort of health authority, Community Health Council. One of my jobs was to visit Whitchurch Hospital and report on conditions there. And then I was put on the Royal Commission on the National Health Service, the only Welsh member on the Royal Commission, which reported in 1979. And under the chairmanship of Sir Alec Merrison, who was a principal of Bristol University at the time, and that was a brilliant thing to be on, because we saw the health service throughout the UK. And we wrote, wrote a report, which was supposed to land on the desk of a Labour Prime Minister, but landed on the desk of Margaret Thatcher. And many of the recommendations, I mean, it was a great privilege to be on that Royal Commission. And I learned a lot. And many of the recommendations made in that report should have been implemented. I think we'd have a very different health service in general if that had been implemented. But, you know, Margaret Thatcher, Alec Merrison used to say, unlike other Royal Commissions, this is not going to gather dust. But sadly, it did gather dust. So how would things have been different if it had been done that way? Well, we had a whole chapter on the role of pharmacists the importance of pharmacists in the health service. They're a very important supplement to the whole health service. They can give advice. They have knowledge of, of drugs. It would have eased the roles of the role of doctors, I think, if the pharmacists had been given a, a greater role. Recently, I was put on by David Cameron, asked to work on complaints in the NHS. And I did that with um, a professor from the north of England. And uh, we wrote a report and we had thousands of letters from people who had bad experiences dealing with complaints. And you realise how much grief there is out there. I mean, you, you feel it yourself. Um, but 
People grieve for years afterwards, particularly if they haven't complained at the time. I'm still stopped on the street in Cardiff and elsewhere by people who say, I wish I'd done what you did because this was wrong and it should have been. And I couldn't do it at the time because I was too upset. There's a lot of that. And I, I think, you know, some of the people dealing with complaints are not high enough up in the pecking order. And I think complaints are still, despite our report, which the Department of Health, it was complaints in England, of course, um, that we were dealing with. But the, the complaints rolled in from Wales. People really shouldn't trivialise the importance of complaints because they're the learning, the sound of learning in a way, because all those people's experiences should make it a better health service if they're acted on. I'm still not satisfied with my my own dealings on my own husband and uh, I've had some more answers that I wouldn't have had otherwise. But there's still some I would like and so I haven't finished on that. And it's a long time to uh, continue battling away but I know you've got to be persistent. Whatever you do, persistence is the name of the game. And now, back almost to where you began your political career, Europe is at the forefront. It's very difficult to call which way things are going to pan out. What would be your best guess at how the Brexit saga will end? Well, to, to be honest, I'd have to say I don't know. If we'd had the votes, you know, before the Christmas holidays we would have some idea. But the fact the vote didn't take place because Theresa May decided she couldn't risk it means that we're still in limbo in some ways. Uh, we know that there are no more offers going to come from the EU, that they've come to the end of the road. They made it quite clear that they made good offers, they think. And uh, Theresa May, you know, can't pull them all over our eyes. She can't carry on pretending... There are ongoing negotiations because they've come to an end. And for people, you know, to attack the Commission and insult people like Juncker, you know, on the Tory side, that is not the way to achieve anything at all because it's unpleasantly personal, shouldn't be said. And I know, having worked, you know, with other countries you know, that that's going to get everybody's back up if they weren't, their backs weren't up already. So I would hope that we have, people have an opportunity to have a second vote because there is no doubt that people did not know the implications, including politicians, of what pulling out of the EU meant. You know, for the economy, for trade, for jobs, for the environment all those things, um, they're going to have big implications and that, that I hope, you know, the majority of people, now they know, will feel that we're better in than out. And have you detected in your own Kinder Valley constituency a change of heart? Certainly, yes. Some recent YouGov polls show quite clearly there has been a change from no so yes, it's not a great change, uh, one has to be honest, so far. 
but it is a change and people do now know a lot more. I can remember canvassing on the day of the referendum and talking to people on the streets and they'd say things to me like, uh, what's in it for us? And I'd say, well, you know, that bridge, that road. And I think the EU have been slow in explaining, you know, what they actually do with, with the money and how, you know, farming has helped, industry has helped, people's jobs exist because of the EU. And that really was, they, they should have played that hand uh, much stronger than they did. But now people are much more aware. But still, you know, I remember during the days of Michael Foote, um, how strongly, you know, there was felt the EU was a capitalist club and really that wasn't something we should be part of. But I would hope that people are a lot more more educated now on the, the possibilities uh, of progress uh, for all of us if we remain members of the EU rather than pulling out and being isolationists. Do you think Jeremy Corbyn has got that message? Well, um, I hope so. I think uh, he's had doubts. He possibly still has doubts. But I think the mass of Labour MPs feel the other way. So I'm sure that'll have some influence. Thank you very much indeed, Dan Clued. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.